When Dorothy has a date with Eddie, she hopes the only thing that comes from it is a swift ending. But after a night of passion, she decides to pursue a strictly physical relationship. The question is, will that be enough to keep her satisfied? Or is Sophia right and she will eventually want more? In the meantime, will Blanche and Rose be supportive of their little pals, even if that means going to the slammer? We'll find out all of that and more in today's episode, Love Me Tender. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. Oh, you're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance, and sing. And laugh just doing our things. No matter the misters that Shadows envelop the house on Richmond Street. Sitting on the living room couch is Sophia in a purple and pink dress and bright teal cardigan, who is crocheting something that is as long as she is tall. Beside her is an all fuchsia except for her black undershirt, Blanche, who is reading a book. Behind them, in an all-crushed velvet purple elongated top and stubby pants that sit atop her white flesh boots is a pacing Dorothy, who can't understand why her date is 30 minutes late. Now, we do have to pause here to go back to Dorothy's outfit because I don't think Coco has laughed that hard at a moment in quite some time, especially when she walked around the couch and revealed her fleshy boots. And your description was spot on, Coco. It was as though she had hunted down, killed, and skinned Grimace. <laughs> the McDonald's character. The McDonald's mascot guy. Lunch at McDonald's. I knew you liked happy endings. Oh, Oh. boy. Nice. That was making me laugh so hard. (laughs) And then when she finally came around the couch, it was just tremendous. I laugh. I I don't know. I mean, I just, I I mean. We had to pause it. It was so funny. (laughs) What a reveal. Well, because when she's walking, you're like, okay, it's the 80s. She's got these big shoulder pads. She's got crushed velvet. She's got a bunch of hangy pearls. Okay. And you maybe picture in your brain like, oh, she's got pants or you know, black slacks or something. (laughs) And then that around the corner of it just keeps going, but not even to a long pant to like a mid calf, a culotte, a crushed velvet culotte. What a horrible phrase. (laughs) Yeah, she was doing a little boot goofing. There's there's a lot of boot goofing in this. uh, They love to boot goof. Yeah, new boot goofing for sure. (laughs) Wait, what? I'm just goofing. New boot goofing. Oh, Blanche can't understand why she would be willing to wait more than 20 minutes for a man. Sophia cares not for etiquette. If her daughter can wait at least six months to even get a date, waiting another 10 minutes, half an hour, that's nothing. It's then that we learn that this isn't just a date, but a blind date. John Quinn. How do you do? I think I'll run along now. Nice meeting you, Mr. John Quinn. Hello. Hi, I'm John Quinn. Could you uh, give me a hand? Well, sure. <laughs> No, not like the one Blanche just went on. This is when Sophia has set up. Dorothy's okay with the date because she thinks it's with Sophia's bestie, Edna's nephew, who happens to be a hot dog. Turns out Dorothy dodged a bullet, as that won't be the man Dorothy is going out with, 
because the guy bought two brides from the Philippines. According to The Atlantic, some of the earliest American women were what you would consider mail-order brides, and the practice is still alive and well. Mail-order brides are actually considered to be one of the most open forms of human trafficking. Many of the women purchased are either forced to sign up or do so out of desperation. Getting to the States doesn't make those problems go away either. According to Anti-Trafficking International, international marriage organizations have been linked to criminal trafficking in several ways. They can be nothing more than fronts for criminal trafficking organizations in which adults and girls are offered to the public as brides but sold privately into prostitution, forced into marriage, including marriages to men who prostitute them, or held in domestic slavery. This is one of the most open forms of trafficking women into developed nations, and almost 3,000 marriage agencies have been identified in driving the industry. So, think about that next time you're watching 90 Day Fiancé. Dorothy's replacement blind date comes courtesy of Sophia's bus riding. Before you get your purple panties in a twist, Blanche, no, the date wasn't some dude she met on the bus. It was from a dating service she saw an ad for on the bus. Stealing 20 bucks from Dorothy and mailing in a photo, Sophia was happy to find the service worked and had set Dorothy up on a date. Feeling rightfully violated, Dorothy cannot believe her mother would send in a photo of her to a stranger. Well, it wasn't so much a photo of Dorothy as it was a photo of film, TV, and stage actress Janet Gaynor, which just happened to be the photo that came in Sophia's wallet. Janet Gaynor was in her heyday back in the 20s and 30s and became best known as the original star of the original version of A Star is Born. And no, Dorothy doesn't look anything like her. Fun fact about Janet Gaynor, she's the first winner of the first Oscar for Best Actress. That's fantastic, and I don't know how I didn't see that. But thank you for bringing that to our attention. That's a fun fact. Unhappy she isn't being celebrated for her lack of boundaries and respect for her daughter, Sophia has had it and excuses herself just in time for the doorbell to ring. Still trying to teach her friend sexy Southern etiquette, Blanche gives Dorothy a quick run-through on how to greet this stranger. Okay, stand straight, put a hand on the hip, look sultry, which for Dorothy means to drop her back and shoulders down. With a deep, hello, she greets Rose, who's carrying a large cardboard box and is now concerned for her friend's hip. Dorothy tries to explain, saying that she had hoped Rose was her date. Well, Rose would love to be her date, but she did have plans for that night, so maybe she can take a rain check? In the box are brochures for the Be a Pal program, and her job is to mail them out to potential group members. When Dorothy asks how that works, Rose starts to explain how to mail things before realizing Dorothy was asking about how the group works. It's basically a big brother, big sister ripoff. A motherless girl gets enrolled and an adult woman, or pal, gets paired with them. During their time together, they hang out, chat, do homework, do fun activities. Hearing how fun the pal program could be, Blanche is actually interested in participating. Dorothy finds that hard to believe, but once Blanche explains how fulfilling it could be and that she would want to see how hot the presumably still-living father is, it all makes sense. Since Rose is already a part of it, she'll have the group send two girls over so both she and Rose can be a pal. Dorothy doesn't seem interested. In all fairness, she is a substitute teacher, so she does her fair share of palling around. Besides, she's got a date to meet who is here right now. 
Revealing her date, nearly six-foot-tall Dorothy is shocked to see a bald five-foot-four man with a soft voice. She finds it hard to believe a computer needed to be involved with getting her a date with this guy. After a half-arsed introduction to the girls, Dorothy starts to explain to Eddie, the date, about the photo mix-up situation. But Eddie needs no explanation. He has purchased frames. He knows what Janet looks like. Besides, when you've been in a deep depression for over a year, as he has, you really don't care about that kind of stuff. There's an awkward silence here, like the audience didn't get the memo that perhaps that was funny. Not that depression is funny, it literally isn't, but that her date, who already isn't exactly what she would go for in the looks department, is also freely unpacking his mental health baggage within four seconds of meeting. Hoping to uplift the situation, Blanche asks what is on the docket for the date. Eddie didn't plan anything because he actually wanted to cancel, but his therapist wouldn't let him. Dorothy suggests they call the therapist together and make him see why a cancellation would be a good idea. But hey, kudos to Eddie. I know this is an 80s, 90s joke of this guy is a loser and he's going to be a bad date because he is a therapist. But now in the 2020s, Having a therapist has become nearly a prerequisite for dating. Yeah, just a few days ago, we were talking to a friend about someone they were dating, and they were talking about that sort of stuff. Uh, yeah, having a therapist. Work yeah. And have, yeah. And we were both, ooh, that's yes. great. Oh, that's fantastic. Once you realize just how bad a shape you were in before, then you're like, oh, everybody needs this. And I'm not talking to you until you've seen how bad your stuff is. And then we can fix it together. And everybody's stuff is bad. That's true. Don't lie to yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Or your therapist. It's okay, though, because we have the tools to help these things. Yeah, and I'd have to imagine once money gets involved, I'm just thinking of people you see on TV that kind of weaponize that therapeutic language. Yeah. Once you have that kind of money involved, then you start... Allegedly. Yes, and then you start getting into the world of people where you can't say no. So even as a therapist, you can't be like, that's not great choices that we're making because then they'll just not see you anymore. It's a terrible conundrum. <laughs> oh, um... It's a great conundrum! It's a great conundrum! Eddie's reason for having a therapist and his lack of excitement about the date is due to the fact that his wife sent him a Dear John letter after 25 years together. It's believed Dear John letters, which were usually letters informing a partner that you had met someone new and the old relationship was over, began during World War II. At the time, John was the most common name for an American man. Going overseas for war, they would receive said Dear John letters, and the term became commonplace. Do you think maybe there's no such thing as a Dear Joan letter because that was just like ex- like kind of expected of men back in the day? It's not, oh, not, not yeah. a surprise. Oh, yeah. Just he like, leave well, a yeah, letter. of course. But Dad, also, I still want you. Dad's go out for smokes and never return with <laughs> or themselves they, or the smokes. Or they have the other person around and they're like, well, yeah, well, I want to be married. I want my wife, but I also want to go be with her. Or they have another entire family yeah. in another town. <laughs> my what was your dad scandal? talking about? Charles Carroll? Yep. <laughs> Carole died in 1997, but the following year, the world found out about what else Carole was up to while on the road. Charles Carole had kept up a secret, parallel, long-term relationship with a woman whom he'd met while making on the road. After Carole's death, his former wife and his other partner contested the newsman's will in court, fighting over a chunk of his Montana property. 
It's clear Rose isn't aware of these letters, among many other things, as she's now upset that Eddie's wife didn't even know his name. Although in this case, it actually works because playing Eddie is John Fiedler. You might know his face, but you definitely know his voice. Most of his 211 credits are from famously voicing Piglet in anything Winnie the Pooh related from 1968 to 2005, the year he passed away. And discover just how big great friends can make you feel. Piglet's big movie. That's a wonderful idea, Pooh. Other shows, plays, and movies John appeared in or voiced were 12 Angry Men, A Raisin in the Sun, Bonanza, The Munsters, The Odd Couple, Star Trek, The Doris Day Show, Three's Company, True Grit, Harper Valley PTA, Cannonball Run, The Bob Newhart Show, Twilight Zone, and Disney movies like The Rescuers, Robin Hood, The Fox and the Hound, The Emperor's New Groove, and the non-Disney La La. Once everyone recovers from their looks of exhaustion at Rose's stupidity, Eddie resigns himself to the idea that he has to take Dorothy out for a meal. Leaving, he motions for Roberta to come with him. When Blanche reminds him that Roberta is his ex-wife's name and his date is Dorothy, he's offended that she's rubbing his nose in the divorce. With a brief prayer to the heavens, Dorothy follows him out the door. The next morning, a chipper jean and floral sweater-wearing Rose is surprised to see Blanche in a silky golden blouse sitting in the living room. She is so excited about the PAL program, she actually got up early to make a list of all of the fun activities they'll be able to do together. Feeling empowered to make a difference, Blanche is enthusiastic about spending time with these young girls, not only to be there for them, but to teach them, to mold them, to inspire them, to change their lives, as long as she only has to do it once a week. Entering the front door is a one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people-eater. Oh, no, that's just Dorothy, who is still in her purple and pearl outfit. Blanche is shocked to see her coming in and asks why, which earns a snarky response of Dorothy going to a jogging trail that had a really strict dress code. Dorothy seems kind of cranky, so she heads to the kitchen to get coffee. Just missing her daughter is Sophia, who has come skittering into the living room, needing the number for the police station. Concerned, Rose asks if something is wrong. Sophia cracks that she's just calling to find the best donut shop before turning into Ellen and barking that, yes, something is wrong. You can stick it up your ass. If you're bullshitting me, I'll slit your throat from ear to ear. The connection of police to donuts started over 60 years ago. Before convenience stores or 24-hour diners, MyRecipes.com says that donuts became the go-to for late-shift cops. The bakery would open in the wee hours, making for one of the only available and affordable food options. With her tan pants up to her nips, a blue shirt, and pink cardigan, Sophia says the problem is that Dorothy never came home. Quelling her concerns, Blanche tells her that she did come home, and she's actually in the kitchen right now. At the table with her coffee, Dorothy is swarmed by gossip sharks who want to hear every detail of her date. But there really isn't much to share. They went to a restaurant, the one where Eddie met Roberta. Not only did they meet there, but Roberta was there because she owns it, runs it, and it's called Roberta's. Eddie wept, pleaded, begged to get his wife back, but Roberta rejected him. So Dorothy joined in on the begging. So that does it. Dorothy and Eddie are over, right? Well, not so much. She actually plans on going out with him again. 
which causes Sophia concern. Maybe Dorothy has dated so little that she can't even tell a good date from a bad one anymore. With a slap on her daughter's hand, Sophia instills in her that this was a bad date. A bad, bad date. Wait, okay, so if you went to a restaurant where he tried to get his ex-wife back, that doesn't count for the early morning arrival. So what happened to those other, I don't know, 12 hours? Dorothy claims that she tried to comfort him and simply lost track of time. Speaking of, she needs to go get showered and dressed because they have a lunch date in just a couple of hours. This seems baffling to the girls. What on earth did those two have in common that would warrant two dates in as many days? Perhaps, Blanche suggests, it's like the old saying, opposites attract. Well, according to a study by Tanya Horwitz, PhD student at University of Colorado, between 82 and 89% of traits were a match from partner to partner. 133 traits were questioned. Political views, religion, drinking habits, educational level, sexual partners, age of becoming sexually active, if you were breastfed as a baby, and so on. However, other characteristics, such as height, weight, personality, and extrovertedness or introvertedness showed no pattern. To clarify, this study was done with hetero couples because there is a separate study being done for same-sex couples to see if there are any differences. Coco, I feel like you and I match on a lot of those things. I don't have all 130 in front of me, but for the ones I listed. Uh, What were they again? Well, let's see. Political views. Mm. Same. Mm -hmm. Religion. Same. Same. Drinking habits. Same. Same. Extremely political, no religion, no drinking, education level, no education. We sound, <laughs> we sound pretty cool. We do Same not education, party. we both dropped out yeah. of college. Mm-hmm. Multiple times. <laughs> Sexual partners, probably similar. I don't know. I don't think we've ever talked about that. No. <gasps> What's your body count, Coco? Gross. <laughs> uh, age of becoming sexually active. 21. Ah, jinx. Mm -hmm. And if you were breastfed as a baby, which I don't think we have that in common, except we weren't held as babies, which is maybe not on that list, but same idea. Should be. (laughs) It definitely has an effect. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny saying that there's no pattern in the other thing, you know, the height, weight, and personality, because you're the introvert and I'm the extrovert. It's true. But you kind of do need that balance. You can't be exactly the same. If we were both extroverted or both introverted, it'd be, uh, yeah, it'd be off. Yeah. I need you to speak for me and order my pischetti at the restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) And I need you to keep me home some nights of the week. That's right. There you go. You're like a werewolf. I have to chain you down. (laughs) You got to get out there and and sing songs. Immediately, Blanche regrets mentioning Opposites Attract because it triggers Rose into a St. Olaf story about Ollie Newton Springle and his wife Bridget, who were total opposites. He was fat, she was thin. One was neat, one was messy. One was tall, one was short. One was a spender, one was tight. Before she can go on, Sophia stops her. Yeah. They get it. They know what opposites are. So she gets back to her story. After the herring juggling act at the local talent show, which of course consisted of the fish juggling tiny sharp knives that could have filleted themselves, 
Before we get to hear the end of the story, we end the scene with Sophia telling Rose flat out that she hates her. The day has come for Blanche and Rose to be a pal. At the door are their youngsters, Marla and Jackie. Shayna Washington is playing Marla and only appeared in one other program, Hard Times on Planet Earth. Jackie is being played by Stephanie Rydell. Stephanie started her journey in entertainment, appearing on TV shows like Punky Brewster, Married with Children, Blossom, Facts of Life, Knott's Landing, and My Two Dads. But she had bigger dreams and went on to form the band that would become Wild Orchid. Not the most recognizable name, but they did have some singles and albums. Most importantly, the band was a stepping stone for one Stacy Fergie Ferguson. Here's one of their bigger singles. Sure, Stephanie can sing, but she ain't Fergie. How I want to touch you every time you're near. I want to feel your body next to mine. What is it, Wild Orchid? Wild Orchid. Oh, this is uh, some uh, old Cinemax movies from when I was a teenager called Wild Orchid. Oh. Yeah, Wild Orchid 2. It was particularly <laughs> memorable Formative. to me. And no kidding, <laughs> right now it is on our DVR. Yeah. Well, we've mentioned Fergie, and that can only mean one thing. It's time to take a break to enjoy my favorite musical performance of all time, Fergie singing the national anthem at the NBA All-Star Game. Stephanie's musical background allowed her to appear on the soundtracks via songwriting or producing for Hannah Montana, Bratz, and Burlesque. Taking her turn as the Joker, Blanche is somehow pulling off a bright green jacket and pants set with some sort of pattern throughout over a bright blue blouse. Competing for the brightest outfit is Rose in purple pants and a black sweater with matching purple flowers adorning it. Schmoozing, Jackie, in her cowboy boots, bleached jeans, and oversized light pink sweatshirt, tells Blanche that she knew over the phone that she would be pretty. While that's all Blanche needs, she has now chosen Jackie as her pal. Rose will be paired with Marla, who is wearing an overall skirt with a white and pink chest panel over a teal sweatshirt. They all look very stylish. Is this a scene where Jackie is wearing boots? Yes. Little cowboy boots? Little cowboy boots. We got another one. New boot goofing. That's right. I'm just goofing. New boot goofing. Oh. Taking a seat on the couch, Rose checks in with what the girls think they might want to do. They were hoping they could go see a movie. The girls are young, but not Oliver and Company young. Lest we forget the Billy Joel-voiced animated animal adventure... Hey, keep it down, guys. The game's on. Oh, boy, Dutcher. <laughs> Some dog has to get help from my cat. <laughs> Another option was Roger Rabbit, which does seem a bit more age-appropriate. I did revisit that film last year, and unfortunately, it didn't really hold up as I had expected. It was also so dark, it really explained a lot of my childhood depression. I'll catch the rabbit, Mr. Valiant, and I'll try him, convict him, and execute him. Those ideas are cute, Rose, but the girls were hoping to see the Kurt Russell, Michelle Pfeiffer, and anti-Semite Mel Gibson picture 
Tequila Sunrise, which I have not seen, so I'll leave it to Coco to get into the details. Here's what Tequila Sunrise is about based on not really knowing and also barely watching the trailer as I was recording. Wait, you haven't seen it? I've never seen Tequila Sunrise. That is shocking. The only thing I found out at the end of it was that it's written and directed by Robert Town, who wrote Chinatown. That is so shocking that you did not see this movie. First off, that you didn't see it in the theater with a family member, even though you were probably too young for it. It was 11 or something. Secondly, that you didn't just track it down because you've seen everything. And also, it's got Kurt Russell in it. But it also looks stupid. (laughs) And is not really remembered at all, I don't think. But here's what I think the plot is based on the trailer. Okay. I think it's about two old friends. And I think Kurt Russell is maybe in law enforcement or something like that. And he has his old friend, Mel Gibson, who he suspects, I think, of being a criminal. And then Michelle Pfeiffer gets involved. uh, They get both get involved in a relationship with Michelle Pfeiffer or something. So kind of a heat uh, reindeer game. uh, (laughs) Of course. You know, departed. Little cat and mouse game. Yeah, exactly. Probably have to bust my friend if I'm going to do my job. And I hate that. I am not sure what time of year this conversation is taking place. Oliver and Company was released to theaters on November 18th, 1988. Roger Rabbit came out on June 22nd that year and was on home video by October. And Tequila Sunrise came out December 2nd. Blanche is fully on board with going to Tequila Sunrise to see Mel Gibson shirtless and feels she has found the perfect pal. As part of their time together, Blanche has decided to show the girls how, with just a little bit of makeup, she can freshen herself to look young, vibrant, and innocent. Although Rose is a little worried regarding time, if Blanche wants to make it to the movie in two hours, she's going to need to skip the innocent part. This comment stops Blanche in her tracks, but it doesn't earn a look or verbal response. As the girls go through Blanche's door, Dorothy is coming in the front one and she's wearing a very cute tan and brown or perhaps yellow plaid shirt that I don't think we've seen yet. Makes my Pacific Northwest heart happy. When Dorothy says she's looking for someone, Rose offers to be of assistance. It's appreciated, but there isn't anything Rose can do. Dorothy needs to talk to someone. Slightly hurt, Rose calls Dorothy out. Okay, I guess I'm too dumb to be able to have a conversation. I see how it is. Realizing just how rude she was, Dorothy asks Rose if she really wants to talk, and she does. Sitting on the couch, Dorothy dives right in. It's been about a week since Dorothy started seeing Eddie, and it's a completely different relationship than any she has ever had, as it is strictly physical. Then she declares that Eddie, the piglet-sized bald man, is in fact the greatest lover she's ever had. Feeling like her friend must be messing with her, Rose says that if they're going to talk, Dorothy needs to be honest, but she promises she means it. The only thing they have in common is underneath the sheets. This, of course, has especially stupid Rose confused as to what Eddie must be hiding under his bedsheets. With pursed lips of annoyance, Dorothy says, his cappuccino maker. Getting more direct, Dorothy tells her, no, it's the sex, Rose. Sex, sex, sex. Sex. That's all they do. No movies, no dinner, no romance, just a one-way ticket to Poundtown. This has Rose so happy for Dorothy. Not only is she getting some, but she also gets to have fresh cappuccinos. Incredible. Getting back to how Dorothy wanted to talk this out, 
Rose asks what the problem is. Getting defensive, Dorothy asks, what problem? She just wanted to talk, heck, maybe even brag about the situation. And no, Rose, she isn't feeling guilty, thank you very much, but, you know, just don't tell anyone. Her desire to stay in a loveless relationship might be confusing for others. Rose promises to keep her secret. She then asks Dorothy if she knows what Nyland means in Norwegian. I guess Charlie's roots were there too? Dorothy doesn't know, but she expects it to mean good at secret keeping or something along those lines. Nope, this is just an example of how Rose won't tell her secret because she's not going to tell her what it means. It's a new day and a new date with Eddie. Coming into the living room to show off the twirl of her outfit is Dorothy. Her clothing looks like a matador and a third grade teacher had a baby. She's got her flesh boots, a forest green skirt that maybe goes up like overalls, a vest, a white underblouse, and a red coat. It would be the perfect thing to wear if Christmas occurred in autumn. When Rose asks if she's going out with Eddie, she gets a very brief response of yes. Dorothy knows to not let too much dead air occur around Rose, especially when she's harboring a secret. Moving away from the topic, Dorothy informs Blanche that she's borrowing her gold earrings. Well, Blanche has no issue with that, but she does give the very necessary warning that they were designed for petite ears. Since Dorothy's were never pinned back, thanks, Sophia, she'll have to let this pair suffice until the long-awaited Dumbo line is released from Disney, Dumbo being the elephant known for his ears, and flight. Going to the kitchen, Dorothy needs a snack before the date. Blanche is confused. You're going out. Why wouldn't you just go get dinner? Well, Dorothy says, there's just never any time for dinner. Blanche and Sophia are left very confused, and Rose is left squirming in her seat at the joy of Dorothy's sex life and the delight of knowing the details of her clandestine relationship. Blanche, holding a book and wearing a teal shirt under a splotchy, could-only-be-made-in-the-80s cover, wonders aloud what is going on with Dorothy and Eddie. Forgetting she's in the company of Rose, she doesn't directly say what she's thinking. She uses the idiom of, there must be something rotten in the state of Denmark. It's the Shakespeare play Hamlet that gives us the line, something is rotten in the state of Denmark. It is said by a palace guard after seeing a ghost. It is, according to nosweatshakespeare.com, in regard to Denmark's relationship with Norway, but being used to relate to the corrupting effect Claudius is having on the kingdom. I know nothing of Hamlet, so that's as far as I go. Rose also knows not of Shakespeare, so when Blanche makes the reference, she does not hesitate to blurt out, it's their cheese! Denmark has a lot of pastures for a lot of cows to make a lot of milk to turn into a lot of different cheeses. The process goes back to the Vikings, even. Some of the more popular varieties are Danish blue cheese, Havarti, and Fontina. And yeah, they are on the stinkier side. But I didn't have the patience to go into the history of their use of preservatives. As exhausted from this conversation as Blanche is, I am in regard to cheese. Happy to solve another mystery, Sophia, in her black and pink floral dress and gray cardigan, is headed to the kitchen. There, she'll find out what's going on, or her name isn't Sophia... Sophia... A concerned Blanche finishes her sentence, Sophia Petrillo? Sophia agrees and then realizes that maybe her doctor was right, and she does need to take all of her medication every day. Nearly bursting with a grin, shimmying Rose in an all-purple, but not purple, not quite periwinkle, somewhere in the middle, dress, 
is giddy to say that Dorothy will never tell Sophia the secret. When Blanche's ears perk up, Rose realizes she may have outed herself. The secret? The secret that she certainly doesn't know anything about. Too late. Blanche, the gossip queen, knows it won't take much to get this secret out of Rose. Like a gargoyle, she plants herself inches from Rose, finger in her face, a smile of, you're going to tell me this secret. But Rose refuses. In the kitchen, Dorothy is having a sandwich while talking to her mother, who can't understand why she is spending all of her time with this guy when she doesn't even love him. Well, it turns out the secret has been spilled because Ellen has burst into the kitchen. Yeah, and I think it would be very nice if you win. Yeah, but then I miss the Golden Ghost, my thought. Let's try and get some sleep. You really do look like shit. So sorry, that's Blanche, and clearly Rose spilled the beans without much intimidation. Aghast at the news, Blanche can't believe as she announces to Dorothy and Sophia, Eddie is a love machine? Rose quickly follows her in, nearly winded by her own betrayal. She swears, though, for those nine seconds, she was holding on to the secret as best she could. What was she to do? Blanche was threatening to tickle her, for God's sake. Dorothy is impressed with Rose's resolve, sarcastically, of course, comparing her strength and will to that of South Africa's late president and survivor of apartheid and 27 years of unjust imprisonment because of his political goals, Nelson Mandela. Now, just a couple of weeks ago, Sophia was giving the kiss of death, among other things, to Sonny Venuccio. This week, though, she's disgusted that her daughter is being driven by the sin of lust. Dorothy holds her own, though, saying, Too bad, Ma, I'm a grown woman, and I have needs. Sophia knows that she has needs. She needs food. She needs air. She needs a better wrinkle cream. You don't need sport or casual nookie. Nookie came into the lexicon in the 1920s. It's believed to have two origins, one being the Dutch term for sex, which is nuken, and the secluded areas you might find it happening, as in a secluded corner nook. The Dutch language and a secret nook kind of takes the toughness out of the song that popularized the term and is Dorothy's current anthem, Nookie by Limp Biscuit. Did you listen to that acoustic one? I did listen to that acoustic <laughs> I one. I only put that for funsies. Well... Everyone's going to hear it right now. <laughs> it was beautiful. I can't talk about how Dorothy's outfit looks more cranberry and taupe right now because Sophia is giving her crap for her relationship. Sophia's constant judgments and criticisms are why Dorothy kept this from her in the first place. And Dorothy has had it. She will do what and who she wants without living in fear of her mother's guilty judgment. Relatable. Dorothy leaves and is going to live her life for herself. An upset Sophia wishes out loud that she had married actor, dancer, and singer Bing Crosby when she could have, a story she does not get into. Blanche asks if she wishes that because he was known as a strict disciplinarian and would have handled Dorothy right now. That's an awful nice way of wording the torment and abuse that was claimed by his children. Bing was physically and mentally abusive to his wives and all of his children. He would spank them until they bled, weigh them weakly, and they would face punishment if weight was gained while also being forced to eat everything off their plates. 
He did leave them some money, but left the rest of it in a trust that they couldn't access until they were 65. No, Sophia doesn't want Dorothy facing any of that. She just wishes that they had been married so that when he died back in 1977, she could just be a wealthy widow and wouldn't have to deal with Dorothy's crap. Oh my, we are at a new location, on the outside at least. On the inside, this mall that they have gone to has been seen in other episodes, such as a psychiatrist's waiting room and the museum's offices. But for right now, it's a clothing store, and the girls are all shopping. Although it's so hard for Blanche to do, as she's built more for European fashion, leaving Rose wondering if everyone in Europe is a music lover, as they all have big behinds. The girls are at the mall for a good reason. They've taken their pals out for a shopping trip. The little pals just returned from helping seniors go up the escalators. They were so caught up in their good deed that they simply lost track of time. But now they would like their big sisters to hold their bags as they go make a wish in the fountain that they'll stay pals forever. After some hugs, the pals are gone. Walking out of the store arm in arm and proud of their influence, Blanche is shocked when her bag sets off the security alarm. Quickly, a guard is present, demanding to see inside that bag. Playing said guard is Tom Simmons. Among his 70 credits are Commando, MacGyver, Jake and the Fat Man, Lewis and Clark, New Adventures of Superman, Home Improvement, ER, Truman Show, Jag, Seventh Heaven, Deadwood, Weeds, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and Mixedish. The following morning, the girls return home and they look beat. Dorothy in her yellow house dress is sipping some tea at the table and she is shocked to see them coming home as she had assumed they were still in their room sleeping. Well, the reason they are so late is because according to Blanche and myself, the American justice system is an imperfect and sluggish piece of antiquated machinery. Translation from Rose, uh, they were in the slammer or jail. Blanche then explains that the pals set them up, putting stolen items in their bag, hoping that they would either get away with it or Blanche and Rose would face the consequences. More importantly, why didn't Dorothy answer when they were calling her all night? Well, she was with Eddie. Sophia was home, though. She should have answered the phone. Dorothy assumes Sophia is angry at her, which kept her from answering. Ignoring Dorothy's calls has been Sophia's form of the silent treatment towards her for 45 years. Aw, cute. Dorothy clears up that confusion, saying that Sophia's probably still angry with her, so she didn't answer the phone. Ignoring Dorothy's calls has been Sophia's form of the silent treatment towards her for 45 years. Aw, that's cute. Sophia's other form of emotional abuse came in the form of getting surgery, whether or not she needed it, and then telling Dorothy about it a few days after the fact. That's a fun mom. The situation with Eddie has been a game changer for Dorothy. She has found new strength. She doesn't care what her mother thinks, and she won't be guilted into living a life that her mother wants instead of one for herself. Any issues Sophia has with it are her own. Speak of the maybe actual devil, a pink-robed Sophia has arrived and is coyly asking Dorothy if she was just getting home. Hoping to earn a guilt trifecta, she asks if none of them will be there at night if she could get a life alert necklace so they won't come home to find her dead on the porch next to the paper. Watch. You just press this button and speak into the air and... I'm having chest pain. I'm calling paramedics and your family, Mr. Miller. I've fallen and I can't get up. We're sending help immediately, Mrs. Fletcher. See? 
Dorothy refuses to fall for the guilt trip. Sophia, though, she's up for the challenge. She can guilt anyone about anything. She could make the girls feel guilty for bombing Pearl Harbor, for which they were very much not responsible. Who is she? My dad? Besides, Sophia doesn't want Dorothy to feel bad. A physical relationship is fine. Wait, Dorothy stops her. Then why are you saying all these other things to the contrary? Well, if Sophia could finish what she was saying without being interrupted by dictator of Libya, Muammar Gaddafi, a.k.a. Dorothy, she would explain that there is nothing wrong with a physical relationship, but she knows that it's not right for Dorothy. She's a deeper person than that, and one day the sex just won't be enough. Sophia just doesn't want her daughter to be bummed out by the shallowness of the relationship that will certainly come to an end sooner than later. If Dorothy can assure her mother that she will be satisfied with the relationship and won't be hurt when it ends, she won't say another word about it. Looking at Sophia, Dorothy says she can handle the relationship. But when her mother forces her to look at her with both eyes, she crumbles. After a thoughtful pause, Dorothy realizes that even though her mother may be a manipulative little newt, she does know her well. And she's right. Dorothy might be able to play off that she's happy with just Nookie, but she knows that Sophia's right, damn it. So now Dorothy has to talk to Eddie about slowly winding down their relationship. After some silent stares from the girls, Dorothy angrily agrees to just end things with him. In the living room, Blanche and Rose are confronting their sticky-fingered pals. They are demanding the girls go to the police and admit that they were, in fact, the thieves. They hear Rose's concern, but they just can't do that. See, they've been in and out of juvie so much, there aren't any more judges left that they can use their puppy dog eyes on. In all dark gray, Blanche points a finger to the girls. They are not going to take the fall for this, so they better figure things out. Backing up the good cop is Rose in a light blue sweater with lace trim who's playing the bad cop. Maybe if she gets them some cookies and milk, they're going to change their minds. I love that this is even an issue. Like they wouldn't have a lawyer that would just put together the very obvious failures that took place. Shame on the pals group, too, for not checking into the girls. That probably means they aren't checking the background of the adult pals either, which could make for a very serious situation. Sure can. We just watched that Netflix documentary about the Boy, Boy Scouts. Scouts. That's what I thought. Oh, Boy Scouts. Big time. This whole last little stretch of this episode is very sitcom-y. How they act with Eddie, which we'll get to, and then just acting as if the girls wouldn't talk to the police, the girls as in Blanche and Rose, and just say, no, we are watching these girls. You have a history of them shoplifting. They put it in our bag. Good day. We are adults. We're super adults. Yeah. We've been adults for a very a long very time. Long time. We're going to shoplift? If no. we're going to shoplift, we're going to shoplift like that? I don't no, think so. You're not going to know it. Going for another route, Blanche offers to write the girls checks for $50 if they'll agree to confess that they set Rose and her up. Just then, Dorothy in a tan pant and shirt with a yellow undershirt comes in from the hallway and watches on as the three talk about bribes and upping the price to $150 for each of them. Frustrated, Blanche scribbles out her payoff and gets the girls out of her life. Leaving with a, thank you, Blanche, the criminals are gone. Dorothy can't believe Blanche would stoop to such behavior. Ah, but she was one step ahead. 
The check she wrote them was from an account she had just closed. They won't be getting a cent. That check is as worthless as one coming from the recently at the time dethroned king and queen of televangelism, Jim and Tammy Baker, later Messner, who were the leaders of the PTL worship scheme. In 1987, their empire of greed, theft, fraud, corruption, and every other sin you could imagine came to a crumbling end. They were no longer raking in the money from the people they were deceiving. Side note, Coco and I watched The Eyes of Tammy Faye, and it was actually really good and showed how Tammy was really more of another victim in her own right. Do you, what do you say to those people who say, oh, you know, she dresses I say, up too much? I say everybody must be who they are. Young people don't ever let anyone make you something that you're not. They're just, just clothes underneath for all the same. That's right, that's right. When bad cop Rose returns with the cookies, she's surprised to learn the girls have decided to confess to the police. Happy to hear her friends won't be going to jail, Dorothy's glee is deflated when the doorbell rings because she knows it's time to dump Eddie. Rose and Blanche offer their support, which Dorothy does appreciate, but she knows that they don't get it. They don't understand the chemical hold Eddie has on her. Fooey, says Blanche. A man is a man, and Eddie is a man just like all the other men who have broken Dorothy's heart over and over and over and over and over through the years. That reminder was meant to be helpful, to light a dumping fire under Dorothy so she can quit before she's fired. And it works. Dorothy will put the face and behaviors of Paul, Steve, Tom, and every other crappy boyfriend in Eddie's place, motivating her to kick him to the curb. As she starts listing off all of her bad bows, Rose pleads for her to just stop because they'll be there all day if they have to wait for her to list every boyfriend that dumped her. Relatable. With as much passion as she had before opening the door that the man will be history, she begs to be with Eddie as soon as she lays eyes on him. Luckily, her friends are there to remind her of the task at hand. But how can she when he looks so adorable dressed in his little cream blazer and light blue button-up without a tie? Eddie can tell right away that something is off, and he's right. Dorothy can't dump him yet, though, because he's doing a little lip quiver that's distracting her. Even his description of getting a poppy seed out of his tooth is a turn-on. Going in for a kiss, Blanche takes over and walks Eddie to the sofa. Sitting remarkably close, she catches a whiff of his cologne and simply must know what the fragrance is. He smells like old spice and, and musk and, and a steak. It's Eddie's natural scent, which is only exacerbated when he gets sweaty. As Blanche starts to go through her list of thousands of ways to seduce a man, Rose stops her before she offers to make Eddie extra sweaty. Now that she's sitting face to face with Eddie, Rose is laying down the law that Dorothy needs to end things, though she's no longer really supportive of the idea because Eddie's ears are just so dang cute. Rose reaches out for them and then begs to get married. Running away from the barrage of sluts, Eddie begs for them to stop. His irresistibility has been a curse since childhood. He knows he's not too much to look at, which is countered by each girl defending his adorableness. And no matter how hard he tries, women are driven wild by his mere existence. His looks, his kisses, his lovemaking, and his lovemaking, which, yes, he mentioned twice because it's his favorite. Eddie wasn't shocked being dumped. The women he likes the most always want to end things because they aren't fulfilled by nights of passionate lovemaking, causing Blanche to ask him out. This situation is something Eddie is well-versed in, so he knows it's time to excuse himself. 
Dorothy asks, can't they be F buddies? No, he's far too addicting, like trying to have only one potato chip. With a French goodbye, Eddie leaves. But not before bumping into Sophia, who turns to ask him about that beauty mark or mole on his neck. When he asks which one she's referring to, she shouts, that one, before leaping into the arms of her daughter's recently dumped partner and falling out the door. Coco, this was your first viewing? That is correct. And? It was very good. It was it was very funny. La- burst out laughing funny in a few parts. <laughs> yeah. And I loved the, uh, I thought that the Eddie character and that premise was really funny too. And I bet they were all, they had to have all known each other. They'd all been working together through similar times. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And just, I mean, and just him being like a voice actor, was he a voice actor at the time? I'm sure that they just were always running into each other. Yeah. On the studio lot. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It's fun because it really kind of teeters on the sitcomness of it all. You know, you've got shoplifting you've got naughty teens you've got a pal program you've got Dorothy in a weird relationship for what she normally has you have this funny character that you wouldn't expect her to be with so it's all very on the verge and I think Sophia's moment of hopping in his arms is like peak sitcom but it's almost like they were aware the whole time yeah like let's just amp it up a little bit at the end and have the girls go totally crazy on this guy I really appreciated that Sophia did that at the very end. Yeah. That was very unexpected because it doesn't happen that often. Mm-hmm. She doesn't do a lot of physical comedy. Yeah. And I noticed, too, that when he first comes in the house, he doesn't get close to anybody. It's not oh, until really? it's not until Blanche brings him in and sits him on the couch that she's close to him. And that's when she's like, what's that cologne? So they really did a good job of kind of setting up that, yeah, once you get in this guy's you know, within five inches of him. The pheromone zone. <laughs> yeah, the pheromone zone. Uh, And side note, I can only assume that the title of this episode came from the Elvis song, Love Me Tender. I don't know why it would relate to this, except... Does it... Oh, well, he smells like steak. (laughs) Just like Elvis did. Sometimes relationships give us something we want, but maybe don't need. Having a totally physical relationship isn't a bad thing, as long as you aren't going without other aspects you might need to be happy. Maybe the situation can evolve to include those things, maybe not. As long as you are honest with yourself and your partner about needs and expectations, there's no harm in it. What is harmful is living your life to appease others. It's one thing to listen to friends or parents when they offer advice, It's quite another to make your choices based on what you perceive to be their judgments. As the kids say, you do you, boo, and boo-hoo to anyone who can't support you. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week for a walk down memory lane with Valentine's Day. That's a ding-dong space. I got a ding-dong space for you. You're talking my language. (laughs) Instead of like, well, where's that coming from? And why do you throw tantrums at dinner? Don't you think that's pathetic at your age? Are you talking to me? Because I do not. Mm -hmm. Terrifying. Inside and Who's in there? Saruman? What about Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey?
streaming only on Peacock. That's after 2005. I wasn't listening. <laughs> and I just wanted to talk about that movie. Because <laughs> it looks so bad. I watched some of it a few days ago, uh. and it is so bad. Cuckoo! Cuckoo, 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 And a kangaroo, and then it, like, pulls Roo out of the kangaroo thing, and it's covered in mucus. <laughs> bad wolf. Whoa, Shay. Can't you see? It's like the setup for a Forensic Files episode. They just went out to model in the woods. It was only half. What are you doing? Can't edge me on a bum goof? Thinking that of me? That I would edge on a bum goof? Pretty goofy. And they're both wearing, I think, extremely blousey clothing. Just blowing blowing all over that tequila sunrise. They look like a couple of uh, ships. (laughs) Masts. Sails. I feel like, didn't Gibson have a bum period? I feel like he showed his bum in Braveheart. Oh, Lethal Weapon. Maybe Lethal Weapon. Everything. And it Bird was, on a wire. And it would like make the news. Butt on a wire. <laughs> yeah, it was It was a huge deal. Nowadays, every star does full nudity and no one cares. But back then it was like, <gasps> that oh, movie Gibson he did. showed his butt. He did that one, The Man Without a Butt. <laughs> Passion <laughs> of the Butt. Pay Butt. <laughs> But some. <laughs> Did you fart? Yes. <laughs> I heard it in the chair. That's my butt some. <laughs> Mad Max butt yawned Thunderdome. <laughs> Is butt yawned a real word? Yeah. Yay. Brave butt. <laughs> the buttriot? Yes. Um, Daddy's butt. <laughs> Daddy's butt too. Yes, we were butts. That's what I was. That's the one I was just gonna do. <laughs> we were butts. Uh, oh, hacksaw butt. Sigh butt. <laughs> no, it'd just be butts. Butt. M M Night Shyamalan's butts. <laughs> M M Butt Shyamalan's butts. Conspiracy butt. Mm. Poke buttus. <laughs> he's in Mel Gibson. I mean, he's in. <laughs> Ew. He's in Pocahontas? Yeah, he's John Smith, the bad white guy. Well, that's, in real I can life, see why he guy. was drawn to that. Mm-hmm. Ham butt. <laughs> it's the Shakespeare's. Oh, Hamlet double. Double. Ham butt double. I'll take a ham butt double. <laughs> On rye. Hoagie well, in a boat, make a float. Make that baby float. Galip buttly. Which one's that? Gallipoli. Which one's that? In Australia. <laughs> Two Australian sprinters face the brutal realities of war uh, when they are sent to fight in the Gallipoli campaign in Turkey during World War. Mm. Yeah, that was a good one. You, you just uh, Yes, love me tender, love me tender steak. Love me for <laughs> like mignon. That theory. As always, thank you for being a friend and thank you for listening. Wait, did I say that back? Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.